As an Australian-owned and operated business, GME openly embraces Australian manufacturing and is proud to release the only Australian-made handheld UHF CB radio, the TX6600S. The TX6600S underwent all stages of its development at the GME head office in Western Sydney. This included industrial testing, on-site warehousing and national distribution. By completing this all in Australia, it ensures that GME can bring products to market faster than those that rely on importing goods from overseas. These internal measures also enable GME to ensure the TX6600S and other products are manufactured to the highest quality. GME products are brought to market through stringent in-house quality assurance practices and backed by an ISO 9001 manufacturing accreditation to ensure product reliability and to uphold the quality that GME is renowned for. Like all GME products, the TX6600S is built tough like the Australian Outback and comes with a rugged IP67 ingress protection rating to ensure exceptional performance and years of reliable use in the harshest work environment. It was designed to suit a wide range of demanding commercial applications from agriculture to construction, mining, councils and countless other industries that require stable and dependable communication to get the job done safely and efficiently. So remember, wherever life takes you, take GME. Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. In the far north of South Australia, you'll find a number of cattle stations belonging to the Williams family, where the second, third and fourth generation work side by side. Cam Williams is a third generation pastoralist and the manager of Peak Station. With his wife Kirsty, who featured on our podcast back in episode 87, and their four kids, Cam is living his dream and there isn't anywhere else he wants to be. When I was visiting the Williams earlier this year, I pretty much forced Cam to come on the podcast and share an insight into his life, what he gets up to in the desert, and also a few yarns about the entertaining encounters he's had on the rare occasion that he uh, swaps the desert for the ocean. Welcome to the podcast, Cam. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It may not be an exciting day for you, but it is for me and everyone else listening because this is our first South Australian station on the show. So uh, before we get into exactly where we are and who we're talking to, let's start off with the usual question of what are you watching, reading or listening to at the moment? Uh, Watching? Currently nothing at the moment. I don't really watch a hell of a lot of TV, but we do watch TV while we're eating dinner with the staff. And we've just finished watching Married at First Sight. So we'll probably wait for the next, like The Bachelorette or something really, uh, well, there's nothing you'd tell too many people about what you're watching anyway. But yeah. There really has been like a lull at the dinner table since Mouse finished, hey? Yeah, there's a lot of people on there that you definitely wouldn't bring home to your parents, put it that way. <laughs> and listening to, I listen to a fair few podcasts not so much your podcast yet because it's still a bit new to me, but i just been listening to Jimmy Barnes's uh, autobiography like that he reads the last, his last two books, so I've just finished them. So I'm on the hunt for something new now. I um, what about, I understand there's been um, some music that you've been listening to nonstop lately. Who would that be? <laughs> That's 
uh, Tom Curtin's just been to the area on his tour just recently and uh, without fail, when the kids are in the car, uh, Tom Curtin's on repeat. So he would normally have a sore voice if he knew how much he was singing in my yeah, car. But nah, he, uh, the kids love him. The best part is is what Jack calls him, isn't it? Tom Turton. Tom Turton. He's like, can you play Tom Turton? <laughs> yeah. I don't know who Tom Turton is, buddy. No. Oh, brilliant. All right. So we are today on Peak Station, which is in South Australia. We've never been to South Australia before or recorded a podcast here. Um, you were previously on a place called Mount Sarah, which is where your amazing wife, Kirsty, has written a few stories for us, which people can find on our website. But it is very different down here to what we're used to up in the Kimberleys or the Top End, um, where we've recorded a lot of our other podcasts. So let's start off with talking a bit about the area and the landscape and just paint a bit of a picture for us. Uh, so the peak is halfway between William Creek and Udnadatta on the Udnadatta track. And I'll speak more so on the Udnadatta area. Is There's a lot of open gibber country with, you know, a mixture of Sandy Hill country and Mulga country and not so much Mulga country where we are here at the peak, but in that area. But it's got a good diversity of country where, you know, responds very quickly and very well to a small amount of rain. So, you now people have, like, it's there's a, there's a long history in the Nadata area for people hanging around the area anyway. So, uh, but yeah, it's more so down this way. There's not the, there's not the uh, coverage of grass that you would normally see elsewhere after, even after, no matter if you had three or four inches of rain or which may not seem a lot to people in the northern part of the country, but three to four inches is quite a lot of rain for this area. And if you got that in one hit, that's enough for the year to, to pull you through for 12 months. But a lot of people with tourists and that driving through here actually look out and wonder what the cattle are actually eating. But the short, the, the feed only grows pretty short here, but it's short and sweet and does the job anyway. So what are the main types of plants here that cattle are grazing on? Uh, well, it's, it, there's different names for it. People, like people in Queensland, New South Wales call it different to what we'd call it or vice versa, but uh, we rely heavily on our summer rains, which grows your your Mitchell grass and your Flinders grass and your button grass, Munyaroo. Munyaroo is like pigweed over in Queensland. Verbine, which is what they call Georgina Lucen over in Queensland and that sort of thing. But uh, some, and then in the winter time, you get your clover grasses and all that sort of type of winter grasses, but or geranium, those sort of things. But right in this area, we definitely rely heavily on our summer. Uh, summer rainfall, like that February, March rainfall. So you get more out of summer rainfall than winter <laughs> rainfall? Yeah. The, the feed that the grows in the summertime is more likely to last for 12 months. And if you if we get rain in winter, the country responds just as well with, with summer or winter rain. But we get bad winds in sort of September, October, and sep- and those sort of you get a big dust storm here and it either blows your, your winter feed away Whereas your summer grass is more likely to stand up in the dust storm or like the the badder months and still be standing like to carry you through over the summer and hopefully and hoping for an early break in the following year. And how many different? I suppose this is a bit of like how long is a piece of string, but. Driving around yesterday, we just drove out to one part of the station and covered so many different country types. Like at one point, it's like quite rocky and gravelly and it looked like there's, you know, nothing much going on. And then the next minute, I was absolutely blown away. We went through this gate and there was just feed everywhere and it was just like a whole another world. Yeah. Like, see, this is on the peak. There's, there's a fair bit of, we're on the uh, western edge of Lake Hare. So there is a bit of, we are quite low like to the sea level, um, like we're pretty well, there's parts of the peak that are, are even below sea level. So there is a lot of red rock where, like I said, if you had three or four inches on it, even eight inches on it, it still wouldn't grow anything, but it's it's more so used as a bit of a dinner plate for your, your river systems or creek systems. So you get good feed value from your creek systems here, but not so much out on your stony country. But uh, but there we've got two quite big... Uh, there's a, the Denison Ranges and Mount Margaret, which are quite big hills here. So 
that's all used as your, like I said, a, a dinner plate for your your creek system. So there's not a hell of a lot of fencing here. Cattle get to roam wherever they want. You know, you've got them in designated areas, obviously, but uh, wherever the rain is, the cattle will follow. Like you don't have you don't have to take them to it; they'll follow it. So they'll um, find the softer, sweeter feed for a start, and then obviously when things dry out a bit. They'll go back out onto your your gibber plain, your crab hole country, where your you know your longer lasting grasses are still there with your Mitchell grass and that. So, but that's the beauty. All every place in the Unadatta area, no matter where you go, that, that has a huge variety of. They don't just have a gibber country and that's it. They got your you got your flood out country that all in the Unadatta area. All creek systems have good feed value. Plus, you've got a mixture of sandhill country, open gibber flats. Some people have a bit of a mulga. Like, it's just got that diversity of everything. So, now I, I hope I don't sound silly, but I have to ask what, what is gibber? Is that the word you're saying? Yeah. Well, it's just a big open, that's all, that's all I know. It is. It's that's a, right. big, a big, a big gibber flat, but. Um, I'll go Google. I just never heard that word yeah. before. I was like, so it must be obviously local to this area. See, so. it's sort of it's sort of from where you're driving along, you can sort of look out in front of you, and there's hardly a tree in sight, and you can probably see for four or five k's in front of you of just big rolling sort of not hill. It's definitely not hilling, but it's just like undulating. undulating sort of uh, country that you know you could you could nearly muster some paddocks on a push bike if you had to, but. That's how open they are, but obviously, you know, when you get the rain, it it does the job. Sounds like that's something we should try, though. Yeah, no, no, I've <laughs> never done it. I'm just saying you could. <laughs> Surely at least the kids could, except they're already, you know, better motorbike riders than I am. So, okay. Um, now, so if it is pretty good country, um, although hard country, do you have to supplement your cattle? No, nah, we don't supplement. Oh, not too many, not, not south of Unadada anyway, or not too many people do it in that area. But, you know, there's, like I said, the feed that does grow doesn't really grow very high, you know, even in a good, like your Mitchell grass might grow to, you know, eight to 12 inches higher and then you eat, or even all your other grasses don't grow much higher. But what does grow doesn't get rank and cattle can eat all year round. When the cows do, start to slip a bit when it does get dry obviously you wean and all that sort of caper but it's 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 not very deficient in anything it's got it's got all your minerals in the ground that you know cattle sort of need to get back in calf and live a happy healthy life and also we because the company that I work for is organic and EU because the organic standards we're not allowed to the other thing I've noticed, which is very different around here, is the cattle type. So I would say, you know, 80% of what people have seen from our website and the people we've had on our podcast, as I've said before, is all very northern focused. It's a whole different uh, climate, landscape and type of operation, type of cattle. We're used to Brahmin cattle, so they're the generally white with the big humps, the big floppy ears, big saggy jewelaps or big, you know, saggy bits of skin hanging under their neck. But there's none of those around here that I've seen. No, no, we're a uh, Hereford and Angus-based herd, have been for quite some time now because it's more so, like you say, it's, it's for marketing purposes mainly. We, all of our cattle head south, either to or Adelaide or Melbourne, that it sort of, area or to feed lotters and they are obviously like they just want british bred cattle and hereford and angus have seemed to have done well over the time which and a lot of like the udnadada william creek cooperpedia area is all hereford and angus based so but yeah they it they've you got a very good temperament and it's just worked for them over the time very it's more so from around alice springs south you yeah. see, you see a lot of you know your British bred type cattle, which obviously because we've got it's a bit of a drier climate, and you know 
a lot of a lot of a lot of the cattle from even Alice Springs, South of Alice Springs, all, a lot of their cattle do come to the southern markets. Yeah, and so it's not your typical look. And I'm using the quote, the air quotes here for anybody obviously who can't see us for a cattle station because you think heaps of Brahmins going on live export ships to tropical climates, which is why you know obviously coming from a tropical or subtropical climate, going to another tropical climate. That's why we have the Brahmins. They're tick resistant. They do really well in the heat and the humidity. But down here, you've got a whole different climate and your cattle are going into the domestic market. So you're not aiming for live export. Everything is going into basically our Coles and Woolies, IGA. Yep, correct. Something that we're actually buying in the shops here. See, a lot of the time, obviously, depending on season, you you aim to finish your cattle off, but it's it's very it can be very dry here at times. And, you know, you've got to sell younger cattle you you young cattle off at a younger age, obviously. So, you know, it's it's very easy to sell well-bred Hereford and well-bred Angus, or even and even crossed cattle into the feedlot market without too much difficulty. Whereas, you know, it just gives you that buffer zone in case you can't finish them off. So, what you're saying is, in a good year or a good couple of years, you can hold on to your cattle until they're older and sell them. But if you're having a, a tough year, you can um, exit them from the herd or, or put them into market at a much younger age and still find a good home and a good price for them because of their breeding and their suitability. Yep, absolutely. And not only that, it gives the, obviously it gives the cow a bit of a a bit of a head start. If it does stay dry, it gives them a head start going into the following summer, like, you know, to put a bit of condition on to sort of march through into the next year and just in case, you know, it still doesn't rain the following year. So, but yeah, like young steer calves are, are, are quite easy to sell off. So yeah, we have uh, a lot more flexibility than people in the far north where they're sort of, sort of hamstrung of what they can do with their cattle. Whereas, like I said, we can um, offload them down south to feedlotters pretty quick. Now, before you said uh, three or four inches can be like make or break for a whole year, what is your annual average or median rainfall? Uh, the average rainfall for the peak is 150 mil. No way. Yeah. And really? It, yep. So, like I've I've heard some of the, the bloke that's at Macumba was saying just the other day, like he can do, like you said, in compar- comparing the Unidata area to, you know, sort of Catherine, that sort of area, like he can do just as good a job here with three to four inches than what they can do up there with 30 inches. So That but, is insane, 150 mil. North of Udin, as you go north of Unidata towards Alice Springs, it does get oh, higher. Yeah. It gets up to that sort of 180 and then keeps – but as you're even going further south, it can get a bit lower. But like I said, you can – we had a 100 mils here last year. And it wasn't an exceptional year, but it was still a good year, only because we had it fall at the right time. If you, as long as you can get it fall at the right time, which is, like I said, February, March, and bits and pieces, like a, a, just a small follow-up after that, you, you know, it can, like I said, it will grow 12 months gracefully anyway. That's incredible. That just blows my mind thinking, you know, coming from the Kimberleys and they're all up in the, you know, sometimes 600s and then even the Pilbara, they're at least three 400s a lot of the time. I guess we are quite far south though, so. Yeah, like like that's definitely the average. So there is some years where there has been, you know, you can have 15 inches of rain. So when I was the last couple of years I was at Mount Sarah in 2018, 19, there was 40 mils in 2018 and 20 mils in 2019. So it definitely works on the law of averages anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And does it make much of a difference? I actually don't know much about lake air at all, except for that it's like a giant lake, but only when there's like a lot of rain. Like it's not just like a permanent body of water all year yeah, round, Yeah, it? it's just like it's a huge catchment area from all around. Like if you had to actually look on a map of how far the water actually comes to feel lake air, it's, it's as far up as Mount Isa and yeah. oh, all in that, probably half of Queensland and then quite a, the top end of sort of South Australia all ends up in there. So there's about sort of well, there could be six quite big sort of river or creek systems that actually fill it. But at the moment there'd be a bit of a puddle in it at the top. But it yeah it wouldn't wouldn't be the word lake here sounds pretty, but it's actually just a dirty big salt lake <laughs> if you ask me. Brilliant. 
Now, let's talk a little bit about the company that you work for. So, your name is Cam Williams yep. and it is William Cattle Company. Now, that does sound like it's a big, you know, corporate company, like we've got the NAPCOs, AAs and CPC and whatnot, but Williams is actually a family-owned cattle company. Yeah, so there's five uh, five blokes that are either brothers or first cousins that own seven properties in the sort of, yeah, William Creek, Cooper Pedy, Udnadatta area um, and have been up this way for about 50 years. So there was brothers and cousins that own the business up up top yep. and then the next generation down and there was a generation before them before yeah. that as well, wasn't there? Yeah, So correct. you guys are about third generation and the kids that are running around at the moment are fourth generation yep. and it is just this big family web. Um, so you – I know I've just been thinking of them as your cousins, but I think they might technically be your second cousins or something. I think some of them even third. And look, yeah, when, you, when you speak to a lot of – yeah, I have trouble with myself keeping up. But when you speak to a lot of people, and they wouldn't even speak or even talk, like associate with their third cousins. But it's helped like, – because we obviously got the last same name. Like, a lot of, we, we are third cousins and, you know, because we've grown up with each other, we're just – we're more so – mates than anything so it's yeah take away our last names and we'd still be good mates i think but it's pretty cool because you've got you're here at peak next door there's tate and nilpana and then next door to that is matt at anna creek and you're all about the same age you're all family yeah so yeah and we've got you know there's tim at hamilton as well but there's um a lot of the kids uh you know, roughly around that same school age. So, and yeah, it, even our, our wives are all come from different parts of parts of Australia. So you, you know, it's good everyone gets along. And you know, like we wouldn't. I don't know any different to be honest with you, because yeah, we've yeah, just, we've just been with in each other's pockets half our life. <laughs> Well, your whole life, really, I guess. Um, yeah. But thinking about it, for a lot of people living in remote parts of Australia, one of the struggles for them is getting time to see family. And usually it's, you know, you try and organise that one trip away a year to go see your family or or if you can get your family to come out and visit you. Whereas uh, while a lot of you guys do have family down south, further down in the Flinders Ranges, um, up here is also like half the district, I suppose, is your family. So, And you're seeing each other, whether it's through work, through just, you know, running the stations and the properties or any kind of social event up here. Yeah. So, like like you said, we don't have to go too far for a reunion or anything. But, you know, it doesn't take much of a, not like an excuse, but, you know, a, a birthday or something like that on a Friday or a Saturday night and, you know, it's nothing to jump in a car for 100 kilometres to go and have a, a tea. But it's more, it's more so just a, a good catch-up because – we're 30, only 35 k's from Nilpana, but you know, each other place up in this area, you can, it's nothing to drive 100 to 150 kilometers to your neighbor's place for a, for a barbecue or a beer. So yeah, it's more so because it's family, you, you, you do make that bit of more of a special effort to, to get there. And you know, whether it's just for a, a four year old's birthday or what it is, you don't need much of an excuse. Yeah. Now, speaking of, social events, what is the social scene like up here in the Udnadatta or northeast South Australia region? Uh, yep. So, William Creek and Udnadatta both have a gym Gymkhana or a, a racing gym. William Creek don't have the races anymore, um, but they have a motorcana and a Gymkhana. Now, what is a motorcana? A motorcana is pretty well exactly the same as a gymkhana. So the gymkhana is where you do, you know, the barrels or the flag and barrel or those sort of things on horseback, whereas the motorcana is of motorbikes. So because up here there's not many horses. See, no one uses horses for work here anymore. It's all done on motorbike. Um, so getting people to go to these events – and pull a horse out of the paddock to do a gym carner was was starting to die in the ass really. So they, well, I don't even know who did it, but many years ago they they decided to get uh, motorbikes involved, and it from there it's gone leaps and bounds. There's there's people coming from you know as far down as sort of Corn, which is down you know it's not that's about eight hours away, coming up for 
motor cunners. So that's the thing that's keeping the show alive. And then we have Bronco Brownings in Udendata and William Creek. So that's uh, like the old school, how they used to brand uh, calves back in the day. There's just, it's just a, there's a Udendata, William Creek and corn do it in South Australia. Plus Undulia have just been doing it up in Alice Springs. So we all sort of try and get to most of them throughout the year. Yeah, I did notice you guys came to Undulia last year and that would have been a good eight or nine hour drive to attend the event. Yeah, I, I, that's personally I'm a bit of a keen follower in, the, in that. Like, it's very uh, – there's a lot of competitions in Queensland and that sort of stuff, but we don't really do a lot of it throughout there. Like for work, it's more so just a well, – you go there and it's good, just a good outing to do that throughout the day than have a few beers with, you know, people, from people from other stations out the night. I suppose the thing is, is that in such low – Populate populations or such fast, like you know, when the population's so spread out that every person attending or participating really does make a big difference. You know, if you guys didn't go, maybe that's only four or five people not coming with your family or six. But say, um, at the gymkhana, if you guys were like, no, we'll just won't go to this gymkhana, well, there's three kids not competing out of maybe only. 15 or 20 kids and it might not sound like a lot but then when you put it into the bigger picture it really is yeah no and more so you like for an example for the the gym carner uh you know it's more so to get the kids out off the place obviously they see this like with they're all on school there so they're always ducking down to port they do the port augusta school there so they are have got outings throughout the year but you know it's it's just good to get them out and with other kids and that but, you know, it's nothing for us to, you know, drive, you know, th- three, four, five hundred kilometres with some ponies and that to to get to a local show because each people – people like to support other shows as well because people come up to William Creek and Udendata and support these shows from, from a long way. So we try and repay the favour and go to their shows and bits and pieces. But it's – yeah, it's, it's good for the soul to get out and about. Now, speaking of good for the soul, tell me about your cricket games. Oh, I just recently, uh, I've been venturing down to Copley, which is about four and a half hours from here, with Tate, the neighbour. He used to he used to live down there and work down there for a while. So when I was at Mount Sarah, there's no way I'd be driving anywhere six and a half to seven hours for a game of cricket. But there's a few games of cricket on down there. A year that we that I go down to now. I used to play cricket years ago as a kid, and when I was well, when I sort of I was, I was up here for six or seven years, no six years, and then went back down to where I grew up and worked with my father for a couple of years. And then while I was down there, I, I started playing cricket again and caught the bug. But yeah, I uh, I've been going back to play for Copley in the last just the last twelve months and. Yeah, you're playing with blokes from off other cattle stations and off the land, so it's it's just a good catch-up, really. So it's four and a half hours one way to get to this cricket game. It's something that I haven't really come across before. It's hard enough, in my experience, trying to get a bloke off the station in the first place to go to any social event. Usually you can drag him to something like a rodeo or camp draft i mean well actually really the people that do camp draft they're all a bit mad for it so they're pretty keen to go to any camp draft they can let's be honest but um you know going four and a half hours one way to a cricket game i think it's amazing i think it's great that you actually give yourself like permission to do that and and can like participate in a community event like that but tell me you know it is a long way and you said when you're at mount sarah it would have been a couple of hours further and you wouldn't have done it what makes you Say yeah, I'm gonna. You know, it must be like a whole day or a weekend or something to. Ah, uh, well, you could you could do it in a day if you wanted to. If you left early enough and then uh, skip the beers. <laughs> yeah, you skip the beers, but that doesn't happen too often. So, <laughs> but no, I take the the two old or the kids come down. The boys come down with me now, so um, they're only what are they seven and four? So. They think they're mad cricketers there now, so they're more than happy to jump in the car and 
normally swag it for the night and come home the next day. But like I said, it's a, it is a long drive to go down there and make a duck and then turn around and come back. So, uh, yeah, you just it's just a good outing with a good bunch of blokes. So that's half the half the reason. I could say, yeah, well, could, a lot of the cricket seasons played over the summer, which is where. There isn't so many shows up this way. Like sort of from November through to March, there is no outings other than a few Christmas shows. And if you don't get away over the the month of January, which is when all your all the staff leave, you know it can be a long summer, especially if it's the season hasn't broken or anything like that. So it's just yeah, it's just good to get off the place just for even if it is only for a day or a day and a half, just to just to refresh more than anything. Sounds like having a, a bit of a work-life balance is something that you're prioritising and also showing your kids as well. Yeah, they like I said, they are mad little – well, I think they're mad little cricketers. So it's it's good to get them out and just so it's, – it's with a different uh, community more so. So it's just a different – different kids, different, like, backgrounds. So it's just good to, you know, get them out and, you know – I wouldn't say that I'm underprivileged from being out here because they love it, but it's just, uh, yeah, socialising with other kids is is probably one of the biggest downfalls. Now, even though your annual rainfall is 150 millimetres, which is bugger all, um, I have noticed there are a few waterholes around here, a few little rivers and stuff that kind of stay as permanent bodies all year round, um, which you can fish in. Is that right? Uh, a good... Dry time will sort of, you know, there is yellow belly at the Adjibuckna waterhole. There has been some caught there, but normally you need a good rain from from Queensland and on from sort of this side. So it's in 2013, the waterholes did get low enough where they sort of ran out of oxygen. Some of them, well, they're not there anymore, put it that way. No one fished them out or anything. They just died because of the drought. But. We're still waiting for the one of those seasons where Queensland, New South Wales and South Australia get a hell of a good year and uh, they'll swim back upstream once they hit the lake, hit, once they hit Lake Hare and refill it. But yeah. and So Lake, lake Eyre, let, just to clarify, isn't like you can't just go take a tinny out and go <laughs> fishing on Lake Eyre. No, nah, no. Nah. Which is really unfortunate yeah. because you – like you said, you share a boundary with Lake Eyre, so you think like, yeah, it got some bad country to go fishing on. When Not the case. when people hear that Lake Eyre got filled, and they think they well in two thousand, I'll just forget whether it was two thousand nineteen or twenty, end of two thousand nineteen. The lake got a lot of water in it from Queensland, like it was when that big bad uh, floods were up there and lost a lot of cattle up there, um, so that all that water reached the lake. Um, and everyone thought we were still quite dry here and everyone thought that the drought had broken here because there was water in the lake. But other than to fly over and to take photos of to look at because it looks pretty when it's full of water, the lake is pretty pretty useless to us anyway. Yeah. So if you want to go for a fish, do you – because I feel like that's just something that every bloke has in common. Like they all like motorbikes and they all go fishing. So I've, I feel like you're probably – I'm pretty happy to go just uh, – Get a charter boat with a few mates and go fishing, and that's a, that's about it. We've been here and tried to fish, but I like the idea of fishing, but I'm not a. I hate the ocean for a start. So really, yeah, I'm You're not a bit a, of a land person. <laughs> I guess we are in the desert. We have spoken about this the other day, but I've had a few altercations with some sea life to <laughs> to keep me out of the ocean for a little while. Uh, you want to elaborate more on these altercations for our listeners? <laughs> Because you're making it sound like a shark attack. <laughs> well, it's yeah. Well, you, the story that you're trying to aim at, I'm not silly here, but um, I thought I was going to die from a shark attack there at one stage. But I went on. I, I, we went on. Well, Kirsty convinced me to go on a bit of a holiday with the, my wife over to Perth, and we done the little bottom corner of Perth, Albany, Margaret River, done all the touristy sort of things. And then we were staying in Perth and flying out that night and with nothing to do. And Kirsty said, oh, well, let's just go to Rottnest Island. Apparently that's pretty good. So I was like, I knew none the while. I said, yep, no worries. Caught a ferry over there. And you, there's no vehicles over there, so you have to ride around this little island. 
And right at the start, she goes, we'll get some snorkeling gear because, you know, apparently there's good snorkeling gear. And I was like, $20 deposit, get that, and then you get your 20 bucks back after. I was like, yep, no worries. I said, I'm not going snorkeling. You can get me a set, but you can, I'm not going. So we had a, we had about 45 minutes to kill right at the end to wait for our ferry to get back, to go back over to the mainland of, like, Fremantle, where it went out of. And... She goes, I'm going snorkeling. I was like, great. I'll wait here. And she goes, no, you're coming with me? And I was like, right. So after much of a discussion, I decided to go with her, but I was like a little pilot fish. I didn't leave her side the whole time. I hate, I just, I just don't get a kick out of it. I don't know what see people seeing it. Anyway, we were snorkeling around in what I believe was two metres of water, but Kirsty said it was only about 60 centimetres of water, but it, it wasn't. It was deeper than that. I couldn't touch and I would, like I said, I was a pilot fish and I was a bit behind her and she I heard her squeal through her snorkel. Not very long, but it was a it was a oh shit. Anyway, I was looking behind me and thinking, what the hell was that? And she just kept swimming and left me there. And I was, so I caught her up and didn't I thought, oh well, it must have been anything too serious. Anyway, after about another five minutes of that I we swam into water which I believe I just had my head out of the water when I asked her, but she believes saying I wasn't that deep, but I, it felt deep to me. And I pulled off my goggles because I couldn't see shit, and she, I said, how do I stop them from fogging up? And anyway, she stopped, and she said, just dunk them in the water. So I dunked them in the water, went to put them back on, and as I looked at her, this fin came out of the water. About, well, it might have been about 50 metres, coming straight for us. And I just, just shit myself. And I just said, I, 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 I was a bit out of, I yelled at her and I said, shark. And I just took off back to the shore. And she was like, what are you, and she, I, could, I could still hear her saying what, but I left her for dead. I didn't care. I was out. <laughs> anyway, I, my, as it was, my, flippers were too big and I flipped that hard that I've lost my flippers. They went out to the ocean. And I kept swimming and swimming, hit the hit the ocean and Kirsty, I'd look back and Kirsty's still coming. I couldn't see the fin anymore. I was like, oh shit. And then these two German backpackers came up to me with a camera and I was like, Did you see that dolphin? And I was like, A dolphin of all things. And I came back and Kirsty came and she was, What's your problem? I said, there was, there was a effing shark there. Didn't you see it? And she said and then next minute I look back out there and there's this little dolphin just swimming around the beach. And I was like, shh. I felt pretty embarrassed. But it still didn't change the fact that my heart was still beating probably 200 beats a minute. And Kirsty said, well, didn't you hear me squeal? I said, yeah. And she goes, well, the dolphin was right in front of us. That's what I, th- I thought it was a shark too. But, like, I realised it was a dolphin. So, But it didn't still didn't change the fact that I was pretty embarrassed. And I never lived that down. I, I hate the ocean since then, but then we went to Fiji, went snorkeling again because it had all the cute little fish, you know, that you see on Finding Nemo, all the cute little movies. And it was actually quite good until a fish that looked like Finding Nemo could see its reflection in my goggles, only in a little bit of water too. And that's that started attacking me, attacking me like I was, I was half its size and I, was, I just got up throw my snorkeling gear away and said I'm finished my snorkeling days are over so but the ocean full stop scares the scares the hell out of me I just love the vision of a full grown man who you know can muster cattle you know work cattle in the yard drive trucks you know do all the stuff and then he's in the ocean like in the most shallow water it and wasn't Nemo shallow. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh, what about was... Nemo and Nemo just headbutts his goggles and you're like, I'm out. Not headbutts me once. It like came at me like ten or twelve times, like as though it wanted to eat me. And I found it's like yeah, but it's, the size of your palm. Yeah, I know, but it's still done it I forgot to mention too, my flippers Kirsty was that adamant that she wanted her twenty dollars back to give them back. So she swam back out. I was, I said, I am not swimming back out there to get them. I don't care if it's a dolphin. I'm done. I'm finished. But then I found out only two weeks after that, I was watching the news when I was home, and there was sightings of sharks that rotten a stone. So I was, I was like, see, I'm not as mad as you think I am. 
I could have seen his shot. I just love that for all the stories, you know, you think you're going to get from somebody living in like remote parts of Australia in the desert, the best yarn we get from you takes place in the ocean. Yeah. But I guess that's, you know, you've been in the desert a long time and this is your place. That's why I'm out here. Because, like I said, even the thought of sailing, like it it just doesn't do it for me one bit. Like the Sydney to Hobart sailing at night and all that sort of, it's just, that's my definition of fear right there. Yeah, fair enough. I suppose just jumping back to the social side of things um, and also your family, we spoke about how pretty much half this region is Williams's and can't knock into someone without them being related to you and that you've got these events to attend. What about the people, you know, you always have, well, I find stations, you've always got people coming to stay or dropping in, and especially you're on a very popular tourist track, the Udnadatta track. Yeah. Um, you must, you know, I know even your mailman brings tourists by, like that's part of his business. Um, so you're meeting people all the time. Have you met anyone? What you know, What's your best Other than family and friends of family, I suppose the – well, the most I wouldn't even say famous because they don't even he doesn't even class himself as famous. He's just a man with balls of steel, if you ask me. Is uh, Justin Jones? So he's a lad with another chap s- kayaked solo over to, from Sydney to New Zealand, and also uh, unassisted that was, and also went and walked all across the North and South Pole like oh unassisted. And he actually done a trip, so that was pretty well unassisted as well, walking from out near uh, out near Ayers Rock, out on the Western Australia uh, Northern Territory border, down to Port Augusta, him and his wife, just with a couple of little buggies and their little kid. And then he called in with his wife. And I didn't know him from Bar of Soap, didn't even know, didn't, name never tweaked. They did me- email to say, yeah, we're just going to drop in to get some – like some rainwater and bits and pieces and it was, yep, no worries. Anyway, got talking, had, we had dinner with the, with him that night and it, something come up ran, completely random about Justin Jones and then his wife just said, oh, Google this. Nothing to do with his exploring or anything. It was something to do with dinner dates or something like that because we were just taking the piss out of him. And... They left that night and I Googled, I Googled him and what I found on Google about this bloke was just blew my mind because for a start he, like I said, I just, I hate the ocean for a start and here he is like, I don't know how many days, I think it was 63 or something, I, he was ages out on the ocean just with a, him and a mate just trying to kayak across to the other side of the, the dip and yeah, here he was right here. I didn't even know, but until I said to him the next morning, I was like, I'm sorry, I had no idea. And he, he said, no, I don't, I don't, I didn't want you to know who I was pretty well. So, but you know, we looked after them pretty well for a couple of days and you know, they're bloody good people because you know, they repaid the favor. They got us to go, they live, lived over in Bondi. They don't now, but they lived over there. And then, you know, as a kind gesture, they put us up in the main drag of Bondi and showed us around Sydney for a couple of days. But, yeah, like, that that's just the start of – see, where I was back down in the Flinders Ranges, you you wouldn't meet people like that. It's, like you said, it's because you live in such a unique part of South Australia and it's really in middle of nowhere. People do make the effort to call in. Considering you've got people doing the drop-in, like, that's probably at one end of the spectrum. Like, wouldn't you like it if they were all like that? Yeah. You know, if everyone who did the drop-in – um, was of that caliber, but of what I'm sure you've got some stories of people at the other end of the caliber of that you kind of wish you just never turned off. <laughs> oh, there's your, plenty of driveway. There's plenty of people. Like even when I lived at Mount Sarah, that's sort of 80 kilometers out from Udnadatta, uh, and the road was closed. Like there's there's plenty of people with caravans and stuff come out this way. They don't even look at road closures or anything. But the road was more so impassable from the, on the other side of us because there was creeks running and they couldn't get through it. But there was some boggy stuff between Mount Sierra and Udendale. And I was going in to pick up food supplies, but which I know the road was closed, but from where our end, we could get in there, no worries at all. But it was, 
There was one chap there that tried to come out with a caravan and four kids, and he was bogged to the he was bogged to the ass, to be fair. And anyway, I was the road was tight. He wouldn't have seen people. It was lucky that we went in to get supplies. I wouldn't have gone down that way for four or five days as it was. But as it was, I, we towed him out and literally the kids jumped in the car. His wife jumped in the car. He jumped in the car. Bang, see you later. Didn't even say thanks for that or anything. It was just like it was a given and he turned around and went back into Unadatta, but I was like, if I knew you weren't even going to say, gee, thanks, I would have left him there anyway. But there's there's plenty of people like that. Yeah, it's really one spectrum to the other, isn't it? Yeah, but, you know, I wouldn't have done that, but I would like to have think I thought I would have done that. But, yeah, there, luckily there is more there oh, is good. more but good people than, than bad people come out this way. Yeah, so if anybody's listening and you're going to come be a tourist around the Udendatta track, um, be like the first guy, don't be like yeah, the second guy. Absolutely. All right, so as we start to wrap up, um, I want to get to a few questions about living out on the land. What would you say has been the most challenging time for you out here? Uh, the most challenging time here probably was in 2019. Uh, that was when we were at Mount Sarah, and it was a pretty bad drought. And we'll, obviously, through the month or just leading into Christmas, we just Kirsty and I just had a fourth child a week before Christmas, so we're down south having him. And then when we came back, because from Christmas till the end of January is when the staff have off. Like it's it's normally too hot to do anything. And, you know, you can't achieve too much other than doing some bore runs and shifting a few cattle that need to be shifted by yourself, but which is not a big deal normally. But it was pretty dry and anything that could go wrong did go wrong. And the, the bore at the house, at the homestead, is a sub-artesian bore and it's very, it was a very old bore. And when we went to it, the pump, it shit itself. So I went to pull it the day before New Year's and as it turns out, uh, the board collapsed in and we were watering about five or 600 cattle off that line. So, and so, so sorry, what does that mean when the bore collapsed in? Like, what? So, obviously, that- this is that's a sub artesian. So, that bore is 300 meters deep, but the water rises up to about, you know, I think it rises up to about 40 meters. So, it's, you don't have to pump it from that deep. But when they drilled that bore, Obviously, they go through a lot of salt streams, so salty water and bits and pieces like that to get down to that 300 metres, but it, it normally it gets cemented off when they drill the bore. But the bore, the bore had been there for, I just forget, it was the bore was 70 years old. So obviously over the years, this, in that salt stream, because it's a steel casing, the salt comes through and sort of rusts out the steel oh, casing and yeah. starts – Obviously, it caves in over the top of it, and then when it goes to pull, and there's a submersible down it. Once you go to pull that out, it wouldn't come out. And when it did came out, it only came out with a poly. Like we nearly bent a windmill in half trying to. Well, the windmill was just there for its good looks. That's all that was there. Um, but we nearly bent that using the, as a jib to try and pull this pump out. But yeah, and that's it. Went downhill from there. So. I had to call upon what my old man came up, I, like because we had to run poly or tape from Nilpana. He came up actually. We had to run poly above ground, just from another another bore that was further on, just back to the house, just to get water for the garden pretty well because. You know, to get someone up in this area to come and drill a bore for you uh, on New Year's Day is pretty pretty rare. But we rang the right people who are – they do drill bores for us anyway, but, you know, it's a pretty – like a sub-artesian bore at that depth is not a five-minute job. So, And all the staff – all his staff were on holidays, but luckily, you know, being good friends with blokes like Charlie Webb and those sort of blokes that over the years they – they didn't have to be there, but they when they realised it was a homestead water, they were like, shit. So they upped everything and came up and drilled a bore. And I think they were there by the 7th or 8th drilling and they were there for seven days drilling and every day it was 46 degrees and I, I 
like what they did for us was unreal. But that year, more so, Kirsty just had a new kid. Well, we yeah, both did, but she was sitting there trying because I didn't see. Her. I was literally getting home at ten o'clock at night and then going by five o'clock in the morning just chasing waters because it was just. You know, poly fittings were popping off at the wrong tanks and got for just for stupid reasons. And like I said, what could go wrong did go wrong. But like the droughts and all the dry times are always most challenging. Trying to find that the happy medium for family life and work life. And but like I said, being family is lucky that you could just call upon someone to come and help out. Yeah. And so when you're saying um, that the bore collapsed and you, so you didn't have water for your gardens but also just like in the house Is yeah that, that's so, so that's, like no so showers the, no sinks no yeah nothing. so well as it turned out the tanks were half full when i realized the pump like the pump had done itself for mischief and then so by the time all this worked out the tanks were down to about a third fullness that so that had to last us for a couple of weeks to you know that the bore does the homestead garden trees and not only that it pumps up to a hill that waters you know anywhere up to five or six hundred cattle out on different pipelines and that so it's a pretty substantial bore for the for the place so yeah it was uh it was a testing couple of weeks anyway it must have been like you come home from the hospital you've got a new baby shit hits the fan and by the time you resurface for air you've got like almost like a one month old yeah well, <laughs> like he just grew overnight that's what it was literally like i said because you know as you try to be home as much as you possible, as much as possible in the month of January, if you can. Look, you, you know, no matter how much sort of preparation you do leading up through, you know, October, November, December, shifting cattle around, why you do have staff, like it didn't matter this time. It just it went belly up real, real quick. But like I said, I'll be forever grateful for those blokes coming to drill that boy there because. They saved my ass that that year anyway. How did you end up watering those cattle until, you know, you said it took them about almost a week to get out there and another week till it was finished. So in those couple of weeks, how did you water those cattle? Uh, We just shifted them onto – well, I just shifted them. Because, see, the the tanks were pretty close to each other, so I just shut certain tanks off and let them build up on one tank and then grabbed them and moved them onto another another bore, another pipeline just for the short term, but – you know, that's that was the other thing, you know, doing all these bull runs and then finding time to do all that. It was because there's like I said, there was no staff, and that's what there was no staff that year coming back oh, from the previous yeah. year. So I couldn't really, well, I couldn't call upon him. There was one lad, sorry, um, but he was away on holidays and I sort of really couldn't call upon him to 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 up, uproot his plans. Just yeah. to save save me. So, if that was the most challenging time, what about just more broadly overall? What is the biggest challenge of living out here? Laura, well, I guess it's you know bringing up a small family. No, I wouldn't say challenging, but it's it's challenging and rewarding at the same at the same time. But it's finding that that correct balance, I suppose, for a, a happy family life, but also making sure that you're you're doing your job properly as well. But, you know, we've got four kids, so bringing them up and schooling them and all that sort of thing is probably the biggest challenge ahead anyway. And what is the best thing about being out here? Uh, I've been pretty pretty lucky, really, uh, you know, as long as we're doing the right thing. Being Obviously being your own boss as such, other, other than answering to the – Older gentlemen, you know, they got enough trust in you to make sure you you're doing your job properly. So, it's where I used to down at Carrot and where I grew up. It's it was a, not a repetitive job, but it was a um the, those farmers that drive around in circles all the time doing like planting crops and that. I I each their own, but I could think that would bore the shit out of me. But up here. I love that. Yeah, doesn't matter what day it is. You could be plumbing one day, you could be welding one the next day. Then you're doing cattle work for three days. It's like because we live so remotely, you sort of got to have a crack at fixing anything. The only thing I'm scared of is electricity. Like I'll sort of wait for an electrician, but that is a healthy fear to have. Uh, but 
I anything else like tile in a bathroom or you know plumbing up anything or like I said anything fence. It's just every day could be different. So. I think, well, you were working on a grader the other day and then, I don't know, did you actually already, you're going to work on the septic today? I've, already, I, I've already done that. Oh. <laughs> uh, for everyone listening, I did ask him to wait until after the podcast, but actually that's right because I can't really smell you. So. Yeah, I was pretty careful. Yeah, so it's not just a cow poo that you deal with, but no. you know. But that's, and that's the thing, like you, you do, you have good lads, like as long as you've got a good relationship with your staff as well, like. Having a good laugh with you, there's a there's a happy medium for being mates with the people you work with and being their boss. So, and at the moment we've we've got a very good crew here. So it's it makes life a lot easier when you've got good staff behind you too. Yeah. All right. What is a book that you would recommend other people to read? <laughs> well, I've only f- I didn't even finish a book. I didn't even finish a book at school. I don't even. I think I just. Bluff my way out of that. Like you know, when you had to read books in English, I the think word book report. I, I got halfway through and I copied a mate type thing. That's I definitely I didn't finish a book, but uh, I read Sydney Kidman, The Cattle King. I've that's I've only read a couple of books, and that's one of them that I've finished from front to back. But that was that's pretty well the only book I can recommend because I finished it. But I just love the way that you know his life when. Back then, when he got in got in financial trouble, he just used to jump on his horse or get in his car and go missing for a while, so they couldn't they couldn't track him down, and so they couldn't take his properties off him, type thing. So he was just, uh, yeah, he would have been a tough worry chap back in the day. So yeah, and he actually owned the peak for a long time, or his company did for a long yeah. time, didn't they? Yep. So, and that's I think that was one of the reasons why I did actually read it. Uh, you know, just more so for a bit of history, like back on the peak, and that's what that's what made me pick it up for a start. Yeah, but if you're if you're not into books and that's something that you read the whole way through, then that says a lot about the book. Yeah, it's just a like if you're interested, obviously if you're interested in cattle and and cattle stations and property or even sheep stations he had, but like just you know, growing an empire type thing. What he did back in the day was. But yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty tough. Okay, now my favourite question to ask everybody is: How do you look after yourself? <laughs> well, some people might argue when they look at me; they might say I don't look after myself. Oh, but, humbug! Uh, no, nah, I just eat plenty of beef. That's that's the main one. But no, nah, I try to drop my fair share of sweat for a start. Like God. I'm not one of those blokes that would make my staff do something I wouldn't do for a start. So, you know, I'm, I'd like to think I'm very well hands on as well. So I, uh, when I do go on holidays, I do uh, put on a couple of kilos from drinking, eating and drinking too much beer probably. But as soon as I come back and start working again, I can lose it pretty quick. But yeah, yeah, it's like I said, I, I eat well, sleep well, all of the above. So, yeah. I think from an outsider's perspective that you're um, attending the cricket games and just the, like you're saying, the catching up with family in the local events is probably a big one too. You may not see it that way, but I think from my perspective, having that time to socialise and get off the place and. I've got a, well, I've got a pretty handy wife too and I've got kids that keep us on our toes until we've got four Four young kids that never, there's never a dull moment around. So, but yeah, it's chasing after them is probably half of that too. All right. And to finish up, looking back on your story so far, what would you say is your major takeaway lesson? Like I said, for a start, more so if you're on a, if you're on a cattle station or managing a cattle station, it's like, you know, it's, it's not making, making staff do something that you're not prepared to get out and drop the sweat to do yourself. Some people fall into a job just from it's not it's not what you know, it's who you know type thing, but it's getting out there and doing it yourself is the is the main is the main thing and don't ex, just ex, clicking your fingers and hope expecting someone else to do it for you. And I'm a firm believer you're a result of your upbringing. So you know I was 
I was pretty fortunate enough to have a very, I grew up in a good little town called Carrington and was looked like, yeah, I had a very good, very fortunate upbringing. So if I can do that for my kids and stuff, like that's one thing that, you know, I can sort of pass on, yeah, getting out there and doing it yourself and not expecting someone else to do it, you know, if I can pass that on to my if that's if that's that's one trait I'd love to pass on to my kids, whatever they want to do in life, I don't what it, it doesn't matter what walk of life they'll go in, but it's yeah, it's just getting out and enjoy what you're doing more so. Because, like I say, another cliche, you know, you don't work a day in your life if you enjoy what what you're doing. And there's not too many days I go to work where I think, shit, I wish I wasn't here. I haven't thought that, to be honest, in the last 10 years. So enjoying what you do is, is the biggest thing. And, you know, a happy and healthy lifestyle more so is, is good for the brain for a start. But I've been pretty fortunate up here to, like, like you say, to be surrounded by family and friends and stuff so you know if any like i said there's not too many days where i don't want to be at work ag workforce specializes in recruiting for agricultural jobs including farm work station work and agribusiness across australia view current jobs advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au if you enjoyed this episode please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station, True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations. And we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au. And we're also on Twitter at Central Station 6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.